Listener discretion is advised. This episode includes descriptions of abuse, torture, body horror, and brief references to sexual violence. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Johannes loved watching the water flow into the basement of Lawang Sebu, the pristine and magnificent headquarters of the Dutch East Indies Railway Company. The complex itself was glorious, a beautiful monument to Dutch ingenuity. Its many windows and tall towers were there to show the Indonesian people just how lucky they were to be part of the Dutch Empire. They got to witness such wondrous architecture and take part in the grand enterprise of Dutch invention. But Johannes was more impressed by the genius contained within this building. Indonesia was a warm place, much warmer than the Netherlands, and Lawang Sewu's architect, C.C. Troon, had devised an incredible way to keep the building cool during the warmest months. He had constructed a basement that could be filled with water, keeping the floors and interiors of Lawang Sewu a nice cold temperature at all hours of the day. Johannes loved beholding the brilliance of it, and he came to watch as the basement was filled. Now he stood on the viewing platform within the massive room, watching as millions of gallons of water continued to pour into its depths. He smiled to himself as the water level slowly rose out of the dark. But then he saw something bobbing on the surface near the center of the room. As the water continued to rise, the object came closer, until there was no question what it was. A human body. His heart skipped a beat as it floated towards him. He was frozen in disbelief as the body drifted closer and closer. Even in the dark, he could see its pale white skin. Its hair was chestnut brown. Its head rolled to the side to face him, and Johannes gasped in horror. The body's face was his own. Johannes heard the door slam shut behind him, sealing him in vast, inky darkness. He called out for help, but heard no response. The only sound was the splash of water pouring from the spouts. Welcome to Haunted Places, a ParCast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places and all other ParCast originals free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Haunted Places free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Haunted in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to Luang Sewu, the former headquarters of the Dutch East Indies Railway Company, located in Samarang, Indonesia, and discover why to this day, it's haunted.
Located in Samarang, the capital of the central Java province of Indonesia, Lawang Sewu stands as a bold and brilliantly crafted work of colonial Dutch architecture. Its bright white walls and red tile roofs complement its many large and arched windows. In fact, the building has so many windows, it earned the name Lawang Sewu, which literally translates to Thousand Doors in English. Lawang Sewu is a complex of four buildings that began construction in 1904. It was commissioned by the Dutch East Indies Railway Company as an expansive headquarters to oversee operations throughout all of the Dutch East Indies. C. C. Troon, the original architect of the complex, designed Lawang Sewu to be a monument to Dutch technology and a public representation of everything the Dutch had brought to Indonesia. Some hoped that it would keep the Indonesian people from questioning the rule of the Dutch colonizers. This intent was most prominent in the foyer, as it had gorgeous stained glass windows that depicted Dutch steam engines and the Dutch railroad in as striking a relief as the religious iconography of antiquity. Yet, as the Dutch railway company was trying to demonstrate Dutch superiority, the Dutch royalty was trying to soothe their generational guilt by implementing what they termed their ethical policy. The policy was intended to increase the living quality of the Indonesian people by providing them with irrigation, education, and emigration. Unfortunately, the ethical policy did little to increase the quality of life for the native peoples. But the education system that was implemented as part of ethical policy ultimately led to the development of an Indonesian national identity. Prior to Dutch colonizing, the island of Java and the greater archipelago of Indonesia was composed of many different warring kingdoms and ethnicities. As the Dutch conquered each kingdom in kind, the conquered peoples became united against their mutual conquerors. The Dutch education system was largely ignorant of the intricacies of these warring factions and simply taught the native peoples that they were all Indonesians instead. Ultimately, the Dutch ignorance of the native past led the Indonesian people to view the Dutch as their true enemy. As the Dutch executives wandered through the upper floors of Lawang Sewu, the Indonesian working class was meeting in back rooms, discussing their plight and how they might escape from it. Adi stood at the back of the janitorial locker room as the rest of the groundskeepers filed in. Adi was always excited for these meetings. They allowed him to express his discontentment, his anger, his hatred for their white overlords. Sure, the rest of them spoke of Marx and his theories. They spoke about economic disparity, pay parity, worker disenfranchisement. All of that was meaningless to Adi. Revolution was Adi's only goal bloody and violent. If the rest of his brothers needed some German philosopher's condemnation of capitalism to drive them to revolt, then that was fine by Adi. The meeting proceeded as usual. The chairman of their group spoke about injustice, spoke about unionizing, spoke about Indonesian identity. Naturally, Adi grew bored. He shouted from the back, Parubahan, revolution. His co-workers joined in, chanting the word over and over. Adi could feel his pulse rising with excitement. Maybe today was the day they would rise to make those people pay. But the chairman also began to shout, 
Adi could see him gesturing to calm his brothers down. Adi's blood began to boil. Every time his people got close to revolting, the chairman got between him and the justice he deserved. As the meeting ended, the crowd began to peter out. Adi stared at the chairman, and as he stared, he came to a realization. This man was no better than the Dutch. Every time the chairman held him back from revolution, he was playing directly into the hands of their Dutch overlords. Adi clenched his fists and scowled. It seemed their group required a revolution of its own. Adi reached into his locker and shuffled around in his toolbox. He pulled out a shiny ball-peen hammer and stuck it through his belt loop. As the last of his co-workers shuffled out of the room, Adi approached the chairman and grabbed him by the arm. The chairman was startled at first, but Adi quickly explained that he only needed a little help. He had a difficult time understanding some of the finer points of Marx's manifesto. Perhaps the chairman would be willing to explain. The other man gladly agreed, and Adi led him to his locker to pull out the manifesto. He turned to the page where it spoke of revolution and asked the chairman to read out loud. As the chairman spoke, Adi could feel his muscles tensing. He wanted blood, but he had never claimed it before. He told himself this was necessary to free his people, but some small doubt still remained. He had to be sure. Adi interrupted the chairman's reading. He asked if a revolution might be necessary. The chairman scoffed. He hoped and believed that violence could be avoided. The Dutch were not unreasonable, but they might be convinced to leave with words alone. Adi's ears flushed red, and he took a deep breath. The chairman was wrong. Revolution was necessary, and it had finally arrived. Adi pulled the hammer from his loop and struck the chairman's skull with ferocity. He swung again and again, reveling in the glorious red blood of the rising proletariat. Then, in the midst of his fury, he heard a scream. He turned around to see a Dutch woman, the secretary of some bigwig in the offices, staring at him in absolute horror. She turned to run, but for Adi, the revolution had only just begun. He couldn't let it end now. He sprinted after her and grabbed her by the neck. She struggled in his grasp, but his hands were too strong, the rough, calloused hands of the working class. He dragged her back into the locker, her kicks losing power with each swing of her leg. By the time he had her next to the chairman, the breath had left her body completely. Adi looked at the deceased pair, a great beginning to the glory he would earn. It was then that he noticed the woman's stomach was slightly distended. It seemed that she was pregnant. Perhaps, he thought, he could use that. He grabbed some rope from his locker, then made a knot against the ceiling. He tied the other end around the woman's neck, then pulled, raising her into the air. He stuck his hand in the chairman's blood, then splashed it against her dress, copying the pattern the blood had made on his own clothing. Then he wrote a letter. The baby was the chairman's. She felt it was shameful. She killed him, then killed herself 
to set her sins right. The story was gross, racist, insensitive. The perfect thing to start a revolution. Adi washed his hands and walked away, a grin stretching across his face. One of the most common spirits seen wandering the halls of Lawang Sewu is the ghost of a Dutch colonial woman. Most often, she is seen in old-fashioned garb, and her head is missing. People believe she likely died of suicide, although it seems strange to think a woman could manage to chop off her own head. Others posit another, even more chilling explanation for the ghost's headless appearance. They say it is a lasting image of the horrific violence perpetrated within the building's walls during World War II. We'll learn about the horrors World War II brought to Luang Sabu in a moment. Now, back to the story. Luang Sewu was originally constructed in 1904 by the Dutch East Indies Railway Company. It was intended to be a glorious monument to Dutch technologies. However, the building's identity shifted when its ownership changed hands in 1942. As the Japanese military began to expand their reach, they set their sights on Indonesia. On March 8, 1942, the Japanese completed their invasion of Java, Indonesia's largest island. While the Dutch and their allied forces, the British, the Australians, and even some Americans, tried to hold back the Japanese invasion, they were sorely outclassed. The allied forces had expended most of their resources in Europe, they had hoped the native people of Indonesia would fight to help the Dutch, but the native populace deserted the Allied army and allowed the Japanese to take the island, largely unopposed. The Indonesians viewed the Japanese as liberators, and they were ecstatic when the Japanese rounded up all Western people on the island. They placed the soldiers in POW camps and the civilians in internment camps. Those who caused problems were sent to special prisons, including a repurposed Lawang Cebu. Hendrik walked down the road, the chains that bound his arms rattling with every step. Several Japanese guards marched with him, their eyes alert and filled with anger. They kept the bayonets on their rifles sharp and would prod him if he slowed, drawing blood and pain from his back. Hendrik had spent the past year locked up in an internment camp, a prisoner in his own country, due to the barbarous aggression of a foreign invader. The Dutch had been in Indonesia for the past 300 years. What right did the Japanese have to claim this land as their own? His anger had grown day after day, until finally one day, Hendrik had had enough. Using a shovel he had been given to dig trenches, he had instead dug the graves of two prison guards he particularly reviled. He struck the guards down and placed them in the dirt. But when his rebellion was discovered, he was grabbed and beaten. And now he was marching to the actual prison, Lawang Sebu. The building came into view as he approached. 
its gorgeous white walls and red roofs, its many archways, two towers, and countless windows that spoke to him of the elegance of Dutch architecture. The Japanese had thought bringing him here was a punishment, but he was thrilled to return to this monument to his people. The glorious building would only inspire him to fight more. As the guards walked him through the front entrance, Hendrik raised his head to look at the stained glass mural above. The trains glowed in the brilliant light, another testament to Dutch ingenuity and craftsmanship. The sight warmed his heart, but that warmth turned to rage as he lowered his eyes to see the room around him. The place was a mess. Supplies were scattered across the floor, Soldiers stomped through the building in all directions. He hadn't expected such disorder from a prison, and the disrespect they paid to the building itself was tantamount to heresy. Luang Sewu deserved more respect than this. Dutch prisoners deserved more orderly accommodations. Hendrik was unaware that he had not entered the prison proper. A guard prodded Hendrik's shoulder with his bayonet directing him down a hallway, then further down a flight of stairs. Hendrik felt his pulse rising as the world around him grew darker. He felt a coldness in the air as he descended, almost as if the spirit of Dutch ingenuity had left him altogether. The guards pressed him onwards down the damp corridor, lit only by meager electric lights. They reached a door and it opened to another dark room with many more doors, each obscured by shadow. The guards slammed the door behind him. They surrounded him and directed him to take off his clothes. Hendrik shook his head no. He would make these Japanese work every chance he got. One stepped forward and grabbed the nape of his shirt. Hendrik looked him square in the eye and spat in his face. Hendrik grinned. Now they'd likely beat him, but so what? He could withstand a beating. Then, to Hendrik's surprise, the guard simply wiped the spit off his face, raised his bayonet, and cut through Hendrik's shirt. The guard did the same with each of Hendrik's clothing items, until Hendrik was standing stark naked in the middle of the dark, damp room. The guard grinned, flecks of Hendrik's spit still clinging to his face, he walked to the edge of the room and grabbed the handle of a door. The guard gestured for Hendrik to approach. Hendrik stood stock still and received a bayonet jab to his arm in response. Hendrik stepped forward and the guard opened the door. Peering into the darkness, Hendrik could see pale white skin. He saw arms and torsos jumbled together, each difficult to differentiate from the other. By counting the heads, he could make out at least eight naked men crammed into a room that couldn't have been more than one meter wide in each direction. Hendrik felt several hands slam against his back as he was pushed forward into the pack. He felt elbows jam into his gut, shoulders jam into his chin. The room was unbelievably hot, and the other prisoner's skin was sticky with sweat and blood. He felt the wood of the door slam into his back, crushing him against the already crushed men. He felt the air leave his lungs. Then 
he felt the door slam into his back once more. He turned his head as much as he could to see that the room was too full. The door simply couldn't close. Then he heard a man from within the room shout with a dry, raspy breath. Death! Death! Give me death! The door opened, and rough hands pulled Hendrick back. He watched the guards wrestle a second man out from the pile. His eyes were hollow. His wilted blonde hair was falling out in clumps. Hendrick and the man locked eyes, and Hendrick could tell that he had given up. Then Hendrick was thrust back into the closet, and the door was slammed shut behind him. Hendrick was suffocating. The room was too small. His legs were too tired. He could feel another man's ribs jabbing into his. When he tried to speak, he could only manage a hoarse whisper. He called out to the men, asking them to fight. If only they could fight, perhaps they could break free. But the men gave him no response. From time to time, he would hear a word whispered in a language he did not understand. These men were not Dutch. They were British, Australian, perhaps even French. Even though he was packed close to these seven men, he felt alone in the dark, suffocating in a prison of human bodies. His mind began to wander. As he grew thirstier from the heat, his thoughts became less and less clear. He began to feel the weak, pulsing hearts of his fellow prisoners beating desperately out of sync. He noticed that he could no longer feel his legs, as though they were frozen beneath him. He could not tell how much time was passing. He wondered if any of this was real, if he even existed at all. The door opened. Hendrick shut his eyes to shield them from the light, but in a moment, he felt another body pressed against his. The room shook as the door slammed. Then, the room shook again. His mind a garbled mess. He vaguely recalled this happening before. A word came to his mind. Death. No, he was still alive enough to know not to call for that. But his parched tongue and dried husk of a mind could only call for one thing. Water. Give me water. Light streamed into his eyes once more, and he felt a hand grasp his arm. The hand yanked him from the pile of flesh, and he felt his lungs expand once more as he stepped into the cold, open air of another room. His memory was clouded, but he could remember the room, now blindingly bright compared to the darkness he had been in before. The hand continued to pull him, and he followed. His legs were barely able to function, but if this man was taking him to water, he would move mountains for a single drop. The next few steps were a blur as he passed through hallway after hallway, door after door. Finally, he was led into a bare room with wide drains in the floor. He could hardly tell what was happening as he saw a guard lift up one of the drains and move it to the side. The guard gestured for him to approach, and he stepped forward. He looked into the drain to see water. Glorious water filling the hole. He knelt down and lowered his hand, the cool liquid touch revitalizing his heart. 
Then he felt a boot slam into his back. He fell into the water with a splash. Hendrick heard the drain slam shut behind him. He grabbed the iron above him and tried to lift, but the iron didn't budge. His pushing only moved his nose below the water level. He had gone from one small prison to another. He felt the cool of the water leach the heat from his body, his skin racked with shivers. He drank what he could, but the water tasted foul. He was sure he was not the first person to be locked beneath the drain. As he floated, exhaustion overtook him, and he began to drift to sleep. Each time he did, his head slipped beneath the waterline, and he would jerk awake again. Some part of his mind would still not allow him to drown. Time passed, but how much, he could not say. His mind was fog, and his life was pain. He tried to remember where he had been, but all was lost in this cell of water and sleeplessness. He racked his mind for memories, any memory at all, but only one thing came to his ever-drifting consciousness. Death, give me death. As soon as he spoke those words, he heard the drain open above him. He felt his body dragged out of the water. He could barely understand what was happening as he was carried through ever-shifting doors and hallways, down stair after stair. He only felt the concrete as he was dropped to the floor. Through his clouded vision, he spotted a pile of severed heads stacked high in a corner. They rose from the floor to the ceiling, a gruesome, grizzled mass of horror-stricken faces, a towering monument to death itself. But among the slaughtered horde, one face stood out to Hendrick. He had seen those hollow, desperate eyes before. He was sure they looked much like his own. Following the Japanese invasion of Indonesia in 1942, Luang Sewu was repurposed as both a Japanese military headquarters and a prison for captured men and women, mostly Dutch colonists. At first, the local Indonesians thought of the Japanese as liberators, but as the Japanese occupation stretched on, the Indonesians soon found that the Japanese could be harsher and crueler than the Dutch who had come before. Rumors started to spread of the horrific tortures that the Japanese were conducting deep in the bowels of Luang Cebu. They told stories of POWs being shoved into tiny spaces forced to stand for days at a time. Other stories had the Japanese shoving prisoners into steel cylinders, filling the cylinders with water, then sealing the prisoners inside. Finally, they told stories of a massive pile of severed heads stored in a corner, its stench spreading throughout the complex. Many of Luang Sewu's ghost stories come from these horrific events. Headless men, are said to wander the halls at night, and shrieks of terror are said to reverberate throughout the basement. But Luang Sewu would not be held by the Japanese for long. We'll learn about Luang Sewu's liberation in a moment. 
Now back to the story. In 1942, Luang Se Wu, the former headquarters of the Dutch East India Railroad Company, located in Samarang, Indonesia, was taken over by invading Japanese forces. The building was repurposed as a prison, and it was rumored to be home to many horrific tortures enacted against Western combatants and unruly native peoples. However, Luang Se Wu would go through another shift in ownership following September 2, 1945, when Japan surrendered to the Allied powers. Japanese forces were immediately ordered to maintain control of Indonesia until Western forces could arrive and relieve them of duty. As Allied forces had already been stretched thin throughout the Pacific, it took several weeks before they reached the Japanese troops in Samarang. Meanwhile, Indonesian military forces viewed this as a great opportunity. With the Japanese cut off from greater military support and the Western troops not due to arrive for weeks, the Indonesians decided it was the perfect time to reclaim their land and declare their independence from Dutch rule. On October 14, 1945, Indonesian rebels battled with Japan forces and Samarang using Luang Sewu as one of the battlegrounds. The battle raged for five days, and the Japanese ultimately repelled the Indonesian forces in Samarang. However, while the Indonesians lost the battle, they ultimately won their war for independence. It was the beginning of a new age for Indonesia. Yet this would be a dark period for Luang Sewu. With the Dutch ousted and the Japanese removed from its halls, Luang Se Wu was left empty and decrepit. The new Indonesian nation wished to distance themselves from the constructions of their former occupiers, and they left Luang Se Wu to rot. As the decades passed, the building's formerly bright paints dulled, its bustling halls stilled, and its reputation darkened. Reports spread of spirits moving between its many doors. Soon, the only people who dared to step foot inside were hubristic ghost hunters, eager for a glimpse into the country's bloody past. Rahman peered through the window, only to see dim shadows cast by a bright moon. For a place called Thousand Doors, he was having a particularly difficult time finding his way inside. Despite these trials, he was undeterred. His friends had called him a coward. He would prove them wrong. By taking a picture of himself inside this infamous building's basement, he would show those fools what kind of man he truly was. He continued around the perimeter, glancing in the windows. The more he stared at the glass, the more tempted he felt. Things would be so much easier if he just broke the window panes. But if the ghosts were real, he did not wish to disrespect their resting place. That would only be asking for trouble. As he neared the rear entrance, he found an old wooden door, padlocked shut. Perfect. He could pick the lock and continue on his journey. As the door creaked open, the smell of must greeted his nostrils. He stepped inside, shutting the door behind him before flicking on his flashlight. He moved the beam across the room. Steel lockers lined the walls and wooden benches were in the center. The ground had a patch of mold growing up from the drain. 
His pulse quickened. The room felt off. He expected this building to feel strange, but he didn't expect it to feel this strange. For a moment, he thought about leaving, but if he left, they would call him a scared little child. He could not prove them right. Ramon took a deep breath in and pressed onwards. He opened a door that led into a long hallway, and he stepped across the tiles with purpose. The hallway led to an expansive foyer, and to his surprise, he saw colored light splayed across the ground. He looked up at the ceiling to see ornately detailed stained glass, the pale moon shining through it. It was stunning, and he found it nearly impossible to pull his eyes away. But a sudden sound pulled his attention back to the ground. Across the hall, he could see a silhouette. No, more like the shade of a human shuffling through the room. The shade seemed to be a man in military uniform, but his head was nowhere to be seen. In shock, Ramon dropped his flashlight. He froze in terror, eyes fixed on the shade, but it only shuffled further away. It seemed that with its head missing, it couldn't see or hear Ramon. Once again, he considered turning back, but he had known there would be ghosts. If he didn't make it to the basement, they would still call him a coward. He had to keep going. He crossed the room quickly, not bothering to quiet his own footsteps. He kept his eyes locked on the shade, but it seemed too preoccupied to bother with him. Ramon reached the staircase and shone his light onto the steps. The once bright yellow stones were caked with years of dust. They descended deeper into inky darkness, untouched by the moonlight. Ramon steeled his nerves and pressed downwards. The musty smell grew stronger with each step, and the hairs raised on the back of his neck. But he continued. He knew who he was. They needed to know, too. The last stair led to a large steel door. Ramon tested the handle, and the door swung open. There was another hallway lined with doors. The doors never seemed to end. He continued forward. As his steps echoed on the stone, he began to hear other sounds far in the distance. Ramon realized these were the awful sounds of war. He picked up his pace, not wishing to get caught up in the violent specters of the Battle of Samarang. He reached the room at the end of the hallway and stepped inside. His heartbeat rose, merely from walking through the doorframe, and he knew he had finally reached his destination. He flashed the light around to reveal a plain concrete room with several small doors lining the wall. This was it, the primary torture room, the source and home of Luang Se Wu's many ghosts. He readied his digital camera and aimed it at his face. Then he took the picture. He turned the screen around to check the shot. Then he nearly wet himself when he saw a pile of heads filling the corner. The room shook with an unearthly explosion. Ramon was filled with terror, but he had finally gotten his picture. 
He could now leave as quickly as possible. He sprinted back down the hall, the sounds of battle growing ever closer. He reached the steel door and bashed it open. Then he took the steps, two at a time. His heart nearly stopped when he reached the foyer. A horde of headless shades marched through the room, moving seemingly without purpose. He took a deep breath, then pressed through the room, dodging each shade as they went by. He reached the hall and broke into a full-blown sprint, the shades safely behind him. He smiled as he approached the locker room door, thinking he was in the clear. But as the door creaked open, he was greeted by yet another ghastly sight. A woman stood in the center of the room. Her skin was waxy and pale, her yellow hair tied neatly in a bun. She would have been beautiful, were it not for her missing torso. Her disembodied head hovered in the air, with her spinal column and internal organs exposed for all the world to see. Blood dripped from her dangling intestines, feeding the mold on the ground. She turned to face him, her eyes sunken and wild. She grinned with sharp teeth, and he knew what he was facing. A dreaded Pontianak, the vampiric ghost of a vengeful and murdered pregnant woman. She hovered towards him, her fangs glinting in the beam of his flashlight. He felt a stream of warm urine trickle down his leg as he quivered in his boots. He was terrified, but he was no coward. She shouted at the spirit and charged into the room. Her mouth opened as she lunged for his neck. He felt his camera strap tighten, but he only stopped when his hand reached the door. He turned his head to see the Pontianak's fangs, tightly gripped to his camera. The photo was the only reason he had come here. That photo was the only proof of his bravery. But it was his photo, or his life. He undid his camera strap and leapt out into the cold night air. He slammed the door shut behind himself and breathed a sigh of relief. He knew his friends would never believe what he had seen. They would say he never went. They would still think he was a coward. But he knew the truth. And that was all that mattered. During the decades of neglect that followed World War II, Luang Sebu became synonymous in Indonesia with the idea of a haunted place. Tales of headless shades, spectral battles, and the fearsome Pontianic spread throughout the nation, keeping most of the populace far from its halls. However, as the 21st century dawned, many Indonesians began to understand the truly haunting aspects of Lawang Sebu. With its past as a monument to Dutch colonizers, its time as a military headquarters for the invading Japanese army, and its historic importance as a prime location of the Battle of Samarang, Lawang Sebu was a symbol of the ever-shifting identities of Indonesia. Enterprising Indonesians recognized that Luang Sebu's old beauty could be restored and repurposed, so long as the nation was willing to face its complicated and conflicting past. 
They set to work, rebuilding Luang Sewu to its former glory, and erected a plaque describing the sacrifices that had been made there during the Indonesian battle for independence. The restorations went wonderfully, and today Luang Sewu is used as a venue for all sorts of cultural events, including craft fairs and weddings. The Thousand Doors have become doorways to the past, rather than doorways to the grave. And as the public's fears of the location are slowly put to rest, perhaps the spirits that haunt it will finally be able to rest as well. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other ParCast originals free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite podcast originals, like Haunted Places, free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Haunted Places in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Kenny Hobbs. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Giles Hofseth. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>